Well, good morning. It's good to see you all today and to be with you. And, a th- and a thanks again to our music team, as always, for leading us into our time around God's Word. Uh, I am thankful that we sing all those verses of Be Thou My Vision, and especially the Battle Shield verse. That's the one that ends up often getting cut. And I think it's an appropriate one in light of our, our text and our, and our context this morning. If you've somehow managed to not notice, it's June. Uh, it's been hard to not notice that it's June. Uh, the world is very eager that we, we recognize it's June. Uh, and it's very colorful about it, if you've noticed. And it's that annual time we're reminded that worldview in some ways is a tale of two rainbows uh, in our culture. Uh, do you remember that story about how the rainbow got invented some years ago uh, when God, having judged the whole world by a global flood for their unrighteousness and their wickedness, spoke then to Noah in words of covenantal commitment and faithfulness, words of grace and words of promise in the wake of that great global and, and truly universal catastrophe, uh, promising him that God would be faithful to his promises and also never again destroy the world with a flood. And it is, it is ironic that that symbol, which should point forever to God's covenantal graciousness to people who humbly need to accept it because of their wickedness, would be chosen as the symbol of pride and those very things for which the world was flooded. We are a culture and a country that is steeped since its origin in Judeo-Christian ethic and morality. It's fascinating to realize just the full extent of the culture war we're currently engaged in when you, when you think that a country like ours, so again, steeped in Judeo-Christian values, we set aside two days a year to acknowledge the life and death of Jesus Christ. And now as a culture, we've chosen to set aside 30 days to celebrate the things Jesus came to die for. And that shouldn't surprise us in the world. That shouldn't surprise us in a fallen culture. But before we are too quick to tisk tisk the world, uh, the church is not immune to these forces as well. It's been sad even over the last couple of weeks to see so many sins revealed in the church, some in the form of uh, massive, uh, massive reports of systemic sin and tolerated sin in, in some of our, our country's oldest denominations, to see churches capitulating on the issues of, of various sexual identities and moralities, uh, listening to an individual this last week referring to uh, scripture as not really teaching on these subjects except for those couple of gotcha verses, which we, we've got one of those gotcha verses this morning. Except for what the Bible says, it doesn't really say anything. Paul this morning is going to challenge us to be very, very careful. The goal this morning is not to dunk on the world. It's not to dunk on a denomination. It's not to dunk on anybody out there. It's to sober us here, to humble us here. Because the sin that can be found out there is the sin that can be found right here. If we will not be humble and obedient individually, and humble and obedient corporately as a church. 
And so I would invite you this morning to take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 9 to 10 this morning. We'll be reading verses 9 to 11 as you find your way there. And as you are able, again, if it's a hardship, please do not. But if you are able to stand to honor the reading of God's word, as is our custom, I invite you to do so. Recall that Paul is coming right off the end of exhorting the Christians to stop taking each other for frivolous lawsuits in front of secular judges and challenging them to use the spiritual wisdom among the people of God to decide the issues of the people of God. And he continues that same line of thinking in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Look with me at verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is where our text will end this morning, but we can't take this passage without the next verse that we will be celebrating next week at Church in the Park. Verse 11 says this, Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Would you pray with me? Father, we come this morning to gather as your people to worship you because indeed we have been called by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ according to his work on our behalf on the cross. We have, through the power of your spirit, been regenerated to newness of life and are even now being sanctified and conformed into the image of Christ. And we ask that this passage would exhort us and challenge us that we would always remain vigilant against that sin which characterizes the kingdom of darkness and must not be found named among your people so that we would be a holy and righteous people in our actions and not just in our standing before you, that there would always be that clear contrast between citizens of heaven and those to whom the gospel call goes out. And so we pray, Lord, that you would give us hearts that are soft to truth and hearts that are also excited about truth and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Paul's argument in this section is not complicated. Uh, that's what makes it a gotcha verse. Like uh, Samuel Clemens, also known as Mark Twain, once said, it wasn't the parts of the Bible that he couldn't understand that bothered him. It was the parts of the Bible he could understand that bothered him. And Paul's not trying here to be very difficult to understand. And his argument, as I said, is very clear. It's very straightforward. He's been telling the church in Corinth, expect those in the world to live in sin. That's, that should be an expectation. He reminded us of that back in chapter 5, verse 10. He's like, I'm not saying don't have anything to do with people who are living in sin in the world because what else would you expect? And if you couldn't do that, you'd have to leave the world. That's, that's what you expect in the world. He said that again in chapter 6, verse 1. Why are you going in front of the world to settle your disputes? That's where the unrighteous people are. Living in sin is to be expected in the world, but it should be unfathomable in and categorically incompatible with the church. And that's the point he's making here in verses 9 to 10. Notice I'm talking about living in a pattern of unrepentant sin. One of the things that uh, will come as a surprise to absolutely nobody in this room is that Christians sin all the time. However, the Christian life is a life that ought to be marked by 
repentance from sin and progressive sanctification, that process of slowly becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying it is incompatible with the Christian faith to have somebody who makes their identity ongoing unrepentant sin and still somehow also claims to be a member of the citizenship of heaven. Why is that the case? What is it that makes this strong contrast between the world and between what should be true in the kingdom of heaven? Well, that's what verse 11 was pointing to. Because our identification now is with the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and because of our transformation through the power of the Spirit of God. And that, again, I said we'll be talking about next week. Paul's argument here has that strong bad news component and that strong good news component. And welcome to Bad News Sunday. So don't miss next week. Do come to church in the park as we get to celebrate the grace of God in the gospel and how that makes the difference. But we don't want to rush there so fast that we also miss the heaviness of this teaching and how it was meant to land heavily on the church in Corinth. A critical plank in the Christian worldview is also being exposed here, and Paul is standing on it when he presents this. And it's important for us as we're reading Scripture to always be asking, how is a Christian to view reality, and what principles are at operation here in the biblical instruction? And one principle that's very clear in this section of Scripture is this. For the Christian, our God-given identity must always dictate our behavior. Our God-given identity dictates our behavior. And that is something that's being currently challenged quite radically in our world. But as Christians, we understand whether that identity is a biological identity given to you at the point where God created you and brought you into this world. Our identity needs to dictate our behavior or whether that's spiritually who you are in Christ and what he's caused you to be born as as a new creature in Christ. Your identity is to dictate your behavior. And Paul is going to take that basic principle and use it to lay out a very blunt and frank guideline for the Christian life. And we see that in verse 9a, the beginning of verse 9. If you're taking notes, that's our first point this morning. A righteous kingdom has righteous citizens. A righteous kingdom has righteous citizens. And Paul begins making this point by using that phrase we've heard a few times now, or do you not know? Or do you not know? We saw that back in chapter 3, verse 16, in chapter 5, verse 6. We've seen it twice in chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. This is the phrase that Paul keeps using to introduce big concepts that ought to be general knowledge. And it's, it still continues to echo and it's evocative of the language of Christ when he kept telling the Pharisees, have you not read? These are things that you should know. And of course it's true that in Corinth there are going to be some of these principles they haven't heard before. And the point isn't to be sarcastic and mock them. But when Paul makes this expression, do you not know, he's saying, hey, guys, this is something every Christian should know. This should be a part of your basic Christian worldview. This should form part of the lens through which you understand and view reality. And what is that principle that he wants them to not not know? It's this, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. That phrase, unrighteous, that term there, is used only one other place in the book of 1 Corinthians, and it's in the same chapter, back in chapter 6, verse 1, when he was talking about suing your brother. And he says, why would you sue your brother by dragging them in front of the unrighteous? It's a word that he uses to distinguish between what characterizes the world and what should characterize the kingdom of God. And it's interesting that in a world like ours that is so infatuated with justice, 
And uh, as a pro tip in your Bible, almost every time you see the word justice or righteousness, it's just different translations of the exact same Greek word. In a world like ours that's infatuated with justice, it is a tragedy that in our fallenness, what characterizes us as a people is that we are unjust. We are unrighteous. We do not live in accordance with nor under the authority of the law of God or the will of God. And Paul says, those whose lives are characterized by disobedience to the law of God, by rebellion against the will of God, that's characteristic of the world. That is not characteristic of the church. Those people who live in such a lifestyle are evidencing that they are not going to be inheritors of the kingdom of heaven. That phrase, will not inherit, is less a warning as it's simply a statement of fact. You could also translate that well, I think, as cannot, not just will not. It's not like, hey, if you keep doing this, I'm going to take away your privileges. It's more like saying, if your bike has no wheels, you can't pedal. If your car has no engine, you can't drive. If your life is characterized by ongoing unrepentant sin, that's not a life in which the Spirit of God is in operation. That's not a life that is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And if you're like, man, that sounds harsh. I didn't write it. Gotcha. It's right there. What is this thing that we cannot, will not inherit if we choose to live lives of ongoing unrepentant sin and unrighteousness? Well, it's the kingdom of God. And that's a theme that's worthy of pausing for just a moment to highlight. The kingdom of God is one of the, the most satisfying, exciting, captivating themes in all of Scripture. I encourage you on perhaps one of your next Bible read-through plans, make a note to trace all the different times that Scripture, Old and New Testament, both are speaking of the coming of the kingdom of God and all that's attendant with it. A wonderful theme and a theme that Paul, as a Jew, would have been raised steeped in all of the promises of God made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to David and to Solomon and through Isaiah and the other prophets. All of these promises of the establishment of an unending kingdom of Messiah. And like all good kingdoms, the kingdom of God over which will preside the Messiah has three key elements, like every kingdom must. A king, a people, and a land. A kingdom, a people, and a land. Jesus was speaking to these themes on earth, constantly reminding of the people what the kingdom of heaven is like, what the kingdom of God is like, the fact that it had drawn near, that he as the Messiah who had come was moving the project of God's kingdom into a new phase. And indeed, in the purposes of God, the advance of the kingdom of God does unfold in different stages. First, there was the king himself who appeared and purchased for himself a redeemed people. Step one, the king asserts his right to redeem a people for himself. And that's what happened at the cross. And then secondly, the good news of redemption spreads from Jerusalem to the uttermost parts of the earth until every last person chosen of God to be a gift to the Son is brought to faith in the King. And in that saving faith in Christ, we all become adopted sons in the family of God. And that includes Christ's rights of inheritance in the kingdom of God. That's kind of cool to think about. Consider every kingdom of the past, especially kingdoms with a king. You had the royal family and you had those other guys. 
right? That's been every kingdom in history. The royal family with all the rights of inheritance and authority and rule and reign and the other guys. Have you considered in the kingdom of God, there is the royal family? And that's it. Everyone who will enter into this kingdom enters as an inheriting son through the only begotten son, Jesus Christ. That's cool. That's also why it's a little tiny pet peeve. When you see all those verses in scripture about being adopted as sons, we want to just keep adding and daughters. The reason the Bible talks about girls being adopted as sons is because the point it is making is not one about biological gender. It's a point that's being made about the right to inherit. In Christ, we are adopted as sons with the right to inherit boys and girls, which is pretty cool. That's the phase of the kingdom we're in now. The spread of the gospel and the bringing in of the people who are now citizens underneath the king who has redeemed them. That's going to take place around the globe and from generation to generation until the third phase of the kingdom happens. And that's when finally the king will return and rid the land of all his enemies, remaking every broken thing and destroying all that is wicked so that in a new heavens and a new earth, he can reign with his chosen people in his restored land. That's history. That's where we're going. That's the kingdom of God. So all of us are living right now in Operation Kingdom Advance Phase 2. That's where we're at. And we who have come to Christ are kingdom citizens under the King of Kings, awaiting the inheritance of, of the fullness of the kingdom when the king returns. And Paul is emphasizing here that that means that there is now a way so intrinsic to the citizens of this kingdom that to rebel against that order is to reveal that you were never an inheritor of the kingdom in the first place. These kingdom citizens must be different. In fact, every mention of the kingdom of God in 1 Corinthians is explicitly drawing a sharp contrast between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. And it's also interesting that each chunk refers to a different phase of the kingdom plan. In 1 Corinthians 4.20, the kingdom of the world advances with cunning rhetoric, but the kingdom of God has been established in divine power. Phase 2, 1 Corinthians 6, our passage, the kingdom of this world is unrighteous. But the kingdom of God is not as it calls people out from the world to be different. And then phase three in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. The kingdom of this world is made of flesh and blood that is mortal and passing away. But the kingdom of God is made of that which cannot die and will be established forever. So the contrast between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God could not be more profound. And part of Paul's point here and part of what we should take away as a church is we must maintain those distinctions as clearly as God did when he revealed them to us. We must not blur the lines. A couple lessons for us here. And the, the first is this, in the camp of Christ, we do things his way. In the camp of Christ, we do things his way. As a, as a Christian, I not only have a new destination, I have a new identity. I have a new way in which I must live and act. I think we need to be careful here of a pattern that has arisen kind of in, in modern parlance 
of being fill-in-the-blank Christians. Have you noticed that? Like, I'm a patriotic Christian. I'm a democratic Christian. I'm a Republican Christian. I'm an athlete Christian. I'm a gay Christian. I'm a fill-in-the-blank Christian. Well, that's not how it works. No, I am crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live. But Christ lives in me, and behold, all things are past, old things are passed away, and all things are become new. And so the life that I do live, in whatever capacity I do, I live by his power and for his name. Don't be a fill-in-the-blank Christian in the camp of Christ. It's all his way, and that's the only way. Secondly, no adherence to Christ, no inheritance in Christ. Right? That's the, the blunt truth here. Am I talking about the fact that if you don't live your life in perfect obedience all the time, you won't go to heaven? No. Phew. Right? That's why the gospel continues to be good news is because there is forgiveness of sins. What I'm talking about here, what Paul is talking about, is the fact that for those who say, I can serve two masters, the answer is, no, you can't. No, you can't. For those who say, I want to love my sin, to be identified with my sin, to live in my sin, and get to go to heaven someday because hell sounds bad. That's not the Christian life. That is not what marks out the citizens of the kingdom of God. If there is no affection for Christ in your heart, no obedience to Christ as a part of your will, if there is no pattern of progressively becoming more like Christ as you look back over your life, you should pause and say, is this for real? Or am I deceiving myself? Because Paul says the unrighteous, those whose lives are characterized by these things, will not, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We must be careful never to try to pretend something that God says is unacceptable is not that big a deal. Sin is a big deal. There are two camps, two ways of living, no middle ground. So how then practically does this look like in our lives? How do we check to see if we are living as those who are part of the righteous kingdom of God or whether we are holding on to sin that God has condemned? Well, Paul helpfully is like, I have a list for just such an occasion. And he's going to give us a sampling of what unrighteous life looks like so that we would be warned, and as he's warned in the Corinthian church, so that they would not tolerate such sin in their midst, but that they would deal with it. So look at your second half of your outline this morning, the second half of verse 9 and verse 10. For the particularly clever among you, you've probably already got that blank filled in, since it's not particularly clever. It's the first phrase in the next part of verse 9. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. And that's indeed how he begins this next section. And why would he have to tell us not to be deceived if it weren't for the fact that sin is tricksy? Sin is sneaky. Sin deceives. Our human hearts are always wanting to pretend that we can have all the blessings of Christ and yet live in all the filth of the flesh by ignoring it, by relabeling it, by hiding it. And we can quickly, so quickly become self-deceived, thinking I'm a good Christian because of this external thing I have done rather than dealing with the fact that Inside, there is no relationship with Christ. 
We do not wish to be deceived. And if you want to avoid that, here's a pro tip. It comes from the only other place in 1 Corinthians that that phrase, don't be deceived, is used. That's in chapter 15, verses 33 to 34, where Paul again writes, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. Does that just sound like something your mom would say? (laughs) Chill out and stop doing that bad thing. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. In our pursuit of Christ's likeness, what is the environment in which you are cultivating the relationships for you to grow? One of the most powerful forces in your life to help you to conform to the image of Jesus Christ or that will drive you away from him are those close friendships in whom you invest your greatest time and attention and affection. Because we're designed to rub off on each other. That's part of what it means to be human. That's how discipleship works. And if we have put ourselves in a position where we are constantly surrounding ourselves in our closest relationships with people who don't love God, you're going to make this a lot harder. Love your neighbor. Love your friends. Love those in the world around you. Paul already addressed this back in chapter 5, verse 10. But be careful those people and those environments where you choose to spend the majority of your time and by which you will be shaped. And that leads us then to this list of specific sins that characterize those who are not citizens on their way to inheriting the kingdom of God. You'll notice some familiarity here. Six of the ten are repeated from the previous list in chapter 5, verses 10 to 11. And then there are four new ones. If you want to try to break it into categories, there's roughly two sections. The first section predominantly deals with sexual sin. The second section predominantly deals with sins that relate to other uncontrolled desires and appetites in our life. And he begins this list with the word fornicator, fornication. And this word, as we discussed before, is any sexual sin in general at its broadest usage, or when it's used more particularly, it refers to any sexual sin by a person who is not currently in a covenant relationship of marriage. It's the big bucket term. And it's a reminder to us, as this term leads out the list, God doesn't just hate sexual sin characterized by various flags that are flying around our culture right now. He hates all sexual sin, period, of every variety, including those which have too often been tolerated or covered up even in the church. What is a sexual sin? Well, it's any way of expressing our sexuality or satisfying sexual desires apart from the covenant relationship of marriage. Everything besides that is out of bounds and falls underneath this category. We've mentioned many times the Greek word behind here is where we get our English word pornography from. And that is just one particularly uh, vicious and pervasive manifestation of this sin. And I would just make as a note, I hate this one because it plays dirty with your kids. As a youth pastor, this one does not fight fair. Satan has been incredibly effective at allowing the rampant portrayal of enticing sin to flood the eyes and ears of our young people. We have to fight for purity in the people of God. And it begins with us as parents. Are we being pure? Are we walking with holiness? 
And then parents, please, please do not give your children privacy. Do not allow Satan unfettered access to the hearts and minds of your children. They have no cultural, constitutional, or biblical right to develop their own personal space free from the discipleship of a parent. If we will not do this, we may lose another generation to this scourge. If we find ourselves enslaved to these sins, it's time to turn the light on. To stop pretending it's not that big a deal. To stop pretending I'll just try harder. To stop pretending that it'll eventually go away. It's just a phase. We need to drag these sins, the whole list, into the light. And that often means the best thing that you can do is talk to an older brother or sister in the faith, call a church and set up a meeting with our bridge ministry or do something and say, hey, I'm ready to put this sin to death. Let's call it what God calls it. I no longer want to be a slave of sexual sin. We're in an over-sexualized culture, and so it will be hard for us to really get our heads around how hard this battle will be until we get into the midst of it. Because where our culture draws the line between that doesn't sound like a good idea and this is fine is very different than where God draws the line. Of course I would never look at pornography. I will watch every new show that comes out on HBO though. We need to draw the lines where God draws them, not the lines of cultural acceptability. Second in the list, not, not idolaters. It may seem a little strange, couched in this list of sexual sins to see the word idolatry, but it actually shouldn't be that strange. Because there is nothing in Scripture quite like our human sexuality that was designed by God to depict who God is and what the gospel is. And therefore, it is absolutely fitting that in a section dealing with how we tend to express our sexuality in sinful ways, it is linked directly to how we express our worship in sinful ways. In our sexual relationship, we are meant to picture the oneness of the triune God. We are to picture the specialness of a covenant love that you see in the gospel. And so Paul here goes after what happens in our hearts when we as Christians give over our affections to something besides God. If you want to know what an idol is in your heart, I've mentioned this before. I think the most helpful short way to summarize is what are you willing to sin to get? If you're willing to sin to achieve something, you've found something in your life that you are now valuing more than God. That's an idol. So it's time to do inventory on our hearts. We can't be faithful citizens of heaven while worshiping the respectability of that perfect dream job. We can't put Christ first and put the cultural notions of what it means to be an empowered woman first. We, we can worship at the altars of even lesser gods like food and sports teams and living vicariously through the accomplishments of our children, the fantasies of romance novels or business magazines, bowing our hearts even to that strange American god named Zillow. Our land is full of idols. As many as any ancient pagan kingdom, we just don't make funny statues and put them on our shelves. If it robs us of contentment in Christ or if it makes us willing to sin, it has ascribed, it has been ascribed worth greater than the one true God and such worship is idolatry. The next item on the list is adulterers. This pairs with that word porneia, fornication. This refers to any sexual sin by those who are in a covenant relationship of marriage. Those who hold the marriage covenant lightly are those who hold the gospel with contempt. For the Christian, they are inseparable in origin and in purpose. 
The marriage covenant pictures God in the gospel. To hold that lightly is to dishonor God and the gospel. They must be held together. Do we guard with jealousy the union of our marriages? Or are we eroding those bonds with emotionally intimate relationships with others? Are we texting and posting our oneness into two-ness and three-ness and more? Do we voyeuristically adulterate the intimacy of our marriages with digital screens or, or lewd literature? Or are we guarding with jealousy the oneness that we have with our covenant spouse? Our culture doesn't really understand what love means, which is why you hear people say things that are impossible like, we just don't love each other anymore. Because that kind of a sentence makes no sense unless you're looking at a Hallmark movie. That sentence makes no sense if you derived your definition by looking at the cross. Because the kind of love that comes from the cross is a kind of love that is based on a covenant commitment to another person, based on your allegiance to the God of the universe, defined by self-sacrifice regardless of the other person. They're not lovely anymore. Doesn't matter. They're not likable anymore. Doesn't matter. That's not what love means. And if we will love our spouses with the kind of love that God showed us on the cross, that is a love that can be guarded for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. Guard your marriages. Then he gets to the two that will probably get somebody thrown in jail one of these days. Nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. In the Greek culture, it referred primarily to the active and passive halves of a homosexual relationship. In ancient Greek culture, the predominant form of homosexuality was older men with younger boys. However, please note the sin being targeted here is not, as a lot of liberal scholars are saying these days, the sin of an oppressive system of patriarchal power differentials. That's not what he's targeting. It's very explicit here. What is being condemned is an expression of sexuality that is not in conformity to the one established in creation. One man, one woman entering into a monogamous covenant for life. Anything outside of that, and I don't think Paul would have imagined quite how many letters would have been added to our acronyms, anything outside of that is sin. And he highlights by using these two terms, I think, in a helpful way, the two different aspects of a lot of this kind of sexual sin that we need to be on guard for. By mentioning the effeminate, he's referring to the half of that sexual relationship, that homosexual relationship that was typically characterized by dressing and acting and performing in a way not in accordance with your given gender. It was the half that acted very feminine and assumed that passive feminine role, often dressing and, and acting like a woman. And then the homosexual side refers to the actual acts and practices of homosexuality. Both are sin. One thing that our cultural philosophers noted a few decades ago that they are half right on is that gender is performative. What they meant by that was you can be born biologically male and there's nothing about being biologically male that makes it physically impossible to wear a dress and put lipstick on. Track it with me so far. It's not like if a boy tries to wear a dress, it just disappears. Poof, doesn't work. And so our culture has said then, okay, should a person act, look a certain way because of their biological sex? 
Or should that be an infinitely malleable world of self-expression? Remember that plank of the Christian worldview I mentioned earlier? This is where that comes back. In the Christian worldview, your God-given identity determines your behavior. It dictates your behavior. And that is where there is an absolute war in our culture right now, and Christians must not give an inch on this. On one side is the idea that you have been created by God and you will never be more you than you are when you look like Jesus Christ because that's what you were made to be as a man of God or as a woman of God. And yes, culture to culture, there can be different expressions of how that works its way out. But in every culture and every time, men ought to seek to express themselves as men who love and look like Jesus and women ought to seek to express themselves as women who love and look like Jesus. On the flip side, you have secular philosophers going back almost a century now who started saying, hey, you know what? Take God out of the picture. Take any kind of ultimate transcendent morality out of the picture. What are you left with? What makes man man? And they said, you know what makes man man? His ability to defy instinct and biology. Unlike all the other animals, man is the only man that can say, I know I was made this way, but I don't want to act like it. And therefore, anything that impinges on my ability to look like and act like however I want to that is opposed to my humanity. Do you understand why gender identity is such an important issue in our culture? It's because it's understood to be inseparable from your humanity. Those are the battle lines. As Christians, our sexual conduct must be in accordance to Scripture. However, our sexual or gender expression must also be in accordance with God-given categories. Out in the world, you would expect a rainbow of never-ending colors. In the church, we must not tolerate the same because we have been given our marching orders by the Creator Himself. There is, and I want to make this point, there is no sexual expression outside of biblical marriage that makes a person non-redeemable. This is huge. There's no perversion of of lifestyle that a person can get into that puts them outside the saving grace of God. And I I recall years ago, a brother in Christ who had come out of this lifestyle and he expressed uh, how difficult it was often for him in the church that as soon as people became aware of some of his story from his past, he said that he often felt like he was treated like some other kind of creature. And that's sin. And that's wrong. Because guess what? We're all on this list somewhere. We're all on this list somewhere. There is no sexual expression outside of biblical marriage that makes a person non-redeemable, and there is no sexual lifestyle outside of biblical marriage that has any place among the redeemed. Those are both true. Can God save somebody from anywhere? Yes. Do we all get to stay where we were when God found us? No. We must all be transformed. And that gets us to the second half this morning. The second category of sins are those other uncontrolled passions and desires that often we give vent to and must not characterize our lives. And he begins there in verse 10 with this phrase, nor thieves. We get our English word kleptomaniac from this term, the pattern of taking things that don't belong to you. And yes, this can be a lifestyle of shoplifting. And some of us need to repent of grabbing stuff that we shouldn't be grabbing. 
well, you know, nobody's going to miss it, or it's no big deal, or that rule doesn't apply to me, or, you know, justice. We are not allowed to take things that don't belong to us. I think this can mean more, sim- more than simply stealing items, however. The heart of a person who takes what doesn't belong to them might be the same kind of a heart of a person who is emotionally and relationally manipulative of others to get them to give them things that they don't deserve either. It's not, the problem isn't that you took bubble gum from Walmart. The problem is that your heart craves what your heart doesn't have a right to. And if that's part of the heart of a Christian, we need to repent from that. Because that leads into the next sin, which is covetousness, to desire more than we are due, particularly if somebody else has it and we don't. A good test for this sin is to think back even over our last week and ask ourselves, how many times did I say or think, I need fill in the blank? I need before I will be content or have a good attitude. I just need what? That extra time, that coffee, that relationship, that job, that what is it? What is it that when we look around, we say, they have it, they look happy. I can't be happy until I have what they have. That's covetousness. If you have God, what else do you need? What else do you need? Can there be other wants? Yes. I very much hope most of you get to go home and have lunch today. That would be good. But lunch is not necessary for joy. God is. And how many silly, petty things like, I didn't get my food on time, have we allowed to rob us of our joy even in this last week? Drunkards. There's our next category. A person enslaved to substances such as alcohol that exert a controlling influence on the body. As Christians, we are to be those who are controlled entirely by the Holy Spirit, not those who live our lives or a lifestyle under the control of of anything else. And I want to make a note here, like all sin, this one has strong physiological connections. You are not a spirit stuck in a body, right? You are a body-spirit being. That's how God created us. We're body-spirit beings, which means if you have a spiritual problem, it will have some kind of physical manifestation. And so, yes, you sin, it will mess with your body. But note, sin is sin. Sin is not a disease. And we live in a culture that has no category for the soul, has no category for spiritual issues. And so everything is defined merely as a disease, a condition, an identity. And it's something then that we can simply excuse as this is just like, you know, I I lost a finger. No, sin is sin. And it is an enslaving sin to fall under the control of some external substance. And a cruel sin at that. Most of us have experienced or known somebody who was underneath the controlling power of some substance. Like all sin that promises what it cannot give and takes much more than you would have ever been willing to give. Whether alcohol or prescription drugs or, hey, how about coffee and caffeine? How about Instagram and social media scrolling? That triggers the same part of your brain as heroin. Our Spokane special, meth, fentanyl, you name it. Is there something in our lives that controls us 
beside the Holy Spirit? And if so, it is not something to be trifled with. Get rid of it. Is it something others can enjoy as they worship God? Good for them. But if it is something for you that is not a part of your worship of God, but has indeed become something that has replaced your worship of God, put it to death. You don't need it. You need God. And be done with that sin. That may involve needing to get some help. There may need to be doctors involved. That's fine. Again, we're physical, spiritual beings. Address the heart issue. Say, I am done with this sin. Revilers is next. Someone who uses force, primarily language, to manipulate, abuse, and control other people. That can include gossip, slander, mockery, scoffing. But the focus is on the intended use of sinful language to exert power over other people. And this is a sin that I think can hide often in our church in, in two different ways. There's sort of the, the hypocrisy technique, which is at church, oh, hi, honey, I love you. Oh, lovely children, we're great. Everybody, look, we're a wonderful family. Go home. Why don't you do what I say? Go to, why are you name calling? Some of us were raised in homes like that. Some of us maybe are leading homes like that. That has no place in the church of God. Those who would use abusive language and anger and force of personality to try to pressure people into coming underneath the power of their will. That is, that is a heart attitude and a lifestyle that will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Or we just get, you know, spiritual about it. And we simply say, oh, I just have the gift of exhortation and spiritual warning and just you know, real direct spiritual wise counsel. Those are all biblical categories. But every single one of them must come from a heart of love. And no matter what we say, if it's coming from a place of pride, coming from a place of anger, it is the sin of man rather than words of God. As a church, we should be able to shoot straight with each other. That's true. But all of our communication ought to be from love, seasoned with grace, in humility for our mutual edification to become more like Christ who is our head. No reviling in the church, nor swindlers. That word, as we mentioned, refers to somebody who has an appetite for more that refuses to be satisfied. They just need, they need, they need. And some of us are prone to this sin as well. It's just never quite enough. I just need better grades. I just need that next promotion. I just need to have a, a faster personal record on my race. I just need to get that next bit of food. I just need, I need, I need, I need. And it's never satisfied. Is God enough for you? Is God enough for me? Can I labor hard, as Paul would say, striving even, but from an attitude of at being at rest in my soul before God? Or is all my external business and all of my striving connected to an appetite in me that just will not ever be satisfied? That characterizes the world because they have nothing sufficient for their appetites. Right? That's understandable. We were designed to have an appetite for the infinite God of the universe. But if we have him, we should be full. And then Paul closes by reminding us, if this is your life, if this is what characterizes you, if this is the sin that you love and think that you can remain in without repentance, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Sin is serious. 
Reminder once again, Christians sin all the time. But a Christian who loves and lives a lifestyle of unrepentant sin is an oxymoron in Scripture. It's a contradiction of terms. And so Paul says both at the beginning and at the end, please understand this is not what somebody who knows Christ looks like. So a couple closing lessons for us. Call sin what God calls it. Call sin what God calls it. Our culture has euphemisms for its euphemisms, right? We just play language games because language games give you lots of loopholes. We do that with our contracts. We do that with our morality. As Christians, we must not be so. We are the people of truth. We don't adopt the vocabulary of the world to describe the issues of the human condition. That's bad anthropology and homardiology, if you want to be technical. We adopt biblical language. What is the one who designed it? What is the one who knows our heart call it? That's what I'm going to call it. And many of you have experienced this in your life where an area of struggle and sin in your life, a major turning point was when you finally got back so far into a corner you couldn't lie about it anymore and you had to simply call it what it was and admit it for what it is and then seeing it finally unadorned with all of our justifications in the full light of truth, we realized maybe for the first time how much we hated that sin compared to the goodness of God. Don't play language games with sin. Call sin what God calls it. Secondly, live righteously. We should be called to live righteously. And this should be exciting. We have such a wonderful opportunity to be the counterexample to the unrighteousness of this world. And we have that opportunity in a way today that has never been true in the history of this nation. If you will live in accordance to God's word, you will stick out in a way that has not been true of any other generation in the church in this nation. Yes, that will get you into lots of trouble. But that's where the adventure is at, and that's where the opportunities are to see God do really cool things through his people as they stand firm on his word. I am increasingly suspicious Satan, as he often does, has overplayed his hand. And I'm hopeful God might be setting up a plot twist. I'm praying for revival. Are you? Guess what? Revival will not come through a hypocritical, lukewarm church that's caught up in the sins of the pagan culture, wishy-washy on the word of God, and going out there trying to convince everybody we're just like them. Revival, if God chooses to bring it, will come through his people faithfully following his word and humbly living it out in a righteous way through prayer and daily dying to self. So let's be those people by the grace of God, by the power of his spirit, for his glory, and let's see what happens. It's exciting to be citizens of the King of Kings. Thirdly, and lastly this morning, love grace. Love grace. As I mentioned, Paul's point is not finished. Verses 9 and 10 is not his closing argument to be made for the Corinthians. He's building somewhere, and that somewhere is the gospel. The difference between inheriting the kingdom of God and not inheriting the kingdom of God is evidenced by a different way of living but it is accomplished by the grace of God in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. We are not the righteous people that we must be because somehow we have better moral fiber, because somehow we are morally superior people who are managed to pull ourselves up to a higher standard. No, we are all 
listers. Was that a new word? We're on the list somewhere. That's us. We are all enslaved to sin and hopelessly so unless a gracious God reaches down and makes the dead alive and gives them his spirit and through the power of his spirit conforms them to the image of Christ. And that's the good news of the gospel. It's the good news for us that still carry around our flesh with all of its old broken appetites. And that's what we'll spend all next week talking about. But we can't end this morning without at least looking forward to that with gratitude for the grace needed and received by each of us. And from that, I also want us to take the encouragement to determine that we shall be a people who, having received so much grace from God, would be so very gracious with one another. That anyone coming into this fellowship, like us, with sinful hearts, craving sin, would find here help and compassion and truth so that we may all together grow to be more like Jesus Christ. We will not pretend sin is not sin, nor will we pretend that somehow somebody's sin is bigger than the gospel. This must be a place shot through with grace just as fully as it is shot through with truth for the glory of God, which is a fitting transition to our time around the Lord's table this morning. You cannot take up the bread and the cup without being reminded of the seriousness of sin. Is covetousness really that bad if I don't say anything? Yes. Yes, it is. The Son of God had to come and die because covetousness is that heinous. Sin is serious. And sin has a solution. And that solution is the death of Jesus Christ and his atoning work through that death. The fact that he has satisfied the wrath of God, paid the penalty of sin, and he credits his righteousness to every believer. And that is why we can sit here this morning and read a passage like this and not just weep openly for our doom, but be able to celebrate. We can inherit the kingdom of heaven despite having been such people because God went to these lengths for his own purposes, to bring a people for himself from every nation, tribe, and tongue on earth. And I want to close before we take together by reading Paul's words on this theme in Galatians 5, when he said this, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, against such things, there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Would you pray with me and then we'll partake together. Father, we confess to our shame that there is not a one of us here today that is not reflected back in these catalogs of sin, in these correctly labeled 
terms of condemnation for those who are in rebellion against you. How thankful we are that by your mercy and for your purposes, you have chosen to intervene. And as your people, we desire that we would take to heart the grace that we have in Christ in a way that produces an unending well of humility and gratitude. But may we who have come to know Jesus Christ, who would identify with his crucifixion for sin, not be so brash as to refuse to crucify our own flesh with its passions and desires. And those of us who have been made alive by your spirit, may we not be so foolish as to refuse to live by that same spirit. So renew us today, Lord, in our, our thanks for the work of Christ. And renew us, we pray, Lord, in our fervor, in love, to walk in obedience. And to do all this indeed for, for our good, for your glory, but also increasingly, Lord, so that we might be that bright hill or bright city on a hill in view of this world, a constant and clear contrast of hope to the darkness and hopelessness around us as you continue to call people to yourself. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take together. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.